Well, this is the third message in our Advent series, God Rest Ye Merry. If you missed either of the first two, you can view them uh, at mylpcoli.com forward slash media or on our YouTube channel, which is simply LifePoint Church of Olympia. And if you view it on on uh, YouTube, be sure to smash that like button and uh, subscribe to the channel. We'd, we'd appreciate that. Also, if you're just tuning in, you, you've probably figured out that the theme of this series is taken from that ancient Christmas carol, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. It's one of the oldest songs that's still sung during the Christmas season. It's probably written in uh, the 16th century, that is the 1500s, although never actually put to print until the 18th century. Um, it remains today a powerful expression of the essential truths of the message of the gospel, which probably explains in part how it has endured through five and a half centuries and why we still sing it. Um, we have observed uh, in the last two messages that in the 16th century when the carol was written, God rest ye merry meant something quite different than we think of today. It actually meant God make you mighty, God make you mighty. So we've been asking and seeking to answer the question, is it really possible to go grow stronger through the Christmas season? Uh, or is it just uh, an inevitable burnout um, so that uh, when we arrive on the 26th of December, um, we're uh, out of money and out of energy and disillusioned with the whole thing? Is it possible instead to grow stronger through the Christmas season? Prophet Isaiah chapter 40 verse 29 wrote that God gives power to the faint and to the one who has no might, he increases strength. The Apostle Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus chapter 3 verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, God would grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. And he prayed for the Colossians that they would be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of God for all endurance and patience with joy. And to the Philippians, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, I wonder how many of you would say this morning, I need strength, uh, endurance, patience, and joy for this season because I just don't have it in myself. Um, anybody? Raise your hand to that. Keep Just keep it up, would you? Because we're about to pray for you. Um, because this is real, right? So keep your hand up. And, and uh, those around them, would you just lay your hand on them and, and uh, let's pray for them uh, together. Lord, we, uh, we know that this is a difficult season for many people and uh, for a whole host of reasons that I don't even have time to list. But Lord, I pray for these who have been willing to raise their hands and even for those who were afraid to, that uh, you might strengthen them as your word promises that you will do for your people, that uh, Lord, you would give them that inner fortitude, that inner strength, that might that comes from you. And uh, Lord, that the world doesn't understand and yet is a an inner source because you live within us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in these three messages leading up to Christmas Day, my, my goal 
uh, has been to suggest three ways that we can gain strength through this season and beyond. And two weeks ago, I suggested that we can take strength when we realize that Jesus' credentials as Messiah are proven by fulfilled prophecy. The preponderance of Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled in the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ point us unmistakably to to Jesus of Nazareth as the one to whom they, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were pointing. And then last week we focused on the proposition that we can take strength when we realize that by his death, Jesus has delivered us from our slavery to the fear of death. Uh, No wonder the ancient carol says, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. And in the remembrance of the birth of the Savior, we're reminded also that by his death, he has done what he alone could do by removing from us that fear of death itself. This morning, I'd like you to consider with me the truth that we can take strength when we acknowledge Jesus for who he is and receive what he came to give, which is peace. We can take strength when we acknowledge Jesus for who he is and receive what he came to give, which is peace. Now, there are two elements that must be held in tension as we read the narrative surrounding Jesus' birth, and they are otherworldly mystery and thisworldly history. I just coined those expressions for today, special for you. You're welcome. Otherworldly mystery and thisworldly history. It could be easy for us to relinquish the story of the birth of Jesus to the category of otherworldly mystery because in this story we encounter heaven intersecting earth, the supernatural intersecting the natural, the divine intersecting the human. And maybe we might write it off just a little bit because of that. But the New Testament writers intended us to also accept the story as this worldly history. The people named are real people. Uh, The places described are real places that you can visit today. The events described really happened And if you're one who is skeptical about the veracity and the credibility of this story, and some are, uh, your best and most intellectually honest approach, I think, is to read the gospel accounts for yourself. So many people I talk to, they say, oh, I don't believe any of that. I say, have you ever read it? Oh, no, I don't have time. Not intellectually honest to write it off without reading it, at least. Luke, who was a physician who traveled with and supported the Apostle Paul and in whose gospel this story is told, intended to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus for a man named Theophilus. And in doing that, he was dependent on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Inasmuch, he wrote, chapter 1 of his gospel, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, notice that, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. See, Luke's purpose was to record history, not fantasy, not mythology. And we today are entirely dependent on those same eyewitnesses and the testimony of the apostles themselves. And the apostles were those 12 men who were closest to Jesus and who had walked with him for at least uh, three full years of his public ministry. And one of those apostles, whose name was Peter, had this to say about the work that he and his fellow apostles did in relating their experiences and observations and interpretations regarding this man Jesus. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when we think about how Luke wrote this narrative of the birth of Jesus, we remember that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was still living and was part of that first Christian church in Jerusalem. Uh, It's not difficult to assume that she was one who provided Luke with a detailed account of the circumstances and the events surrounding the birth of her best-known son. Well, Luke and Ariel, or Hake and Ariel, not Luke and Ariel, Hake and Ariel, read uh, for us um, the passage that we're considering this morning. Let me just read the the verses that we're going to focus on this morning within that larger passage, verses 8 to 14 of Luke 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Continuing by way of introduction, actually, it's also worth noting here that in the nativity narrative in Luke's gospel, we again see prophecy being fulfilled. Micah 5.2, 700 years before Christ. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That prophecy, again, 700 years before Christ, was that Messiah the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, the hometown of King David. God, in his sovereign foreknowledge, chose Joseph, whose lineage could be traced directly to David, and whose ancestral home, therefore, was Bethlehem, or we know it as Bethlehem, to be the husband of Mary, the mother of Messiah. And then that same God, 
sovereignly moved the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, to order a census of the entire world. And by that, we assume he's talking about the Roman Empire because they thought they were the center of the world. In order to relocate Mary and Joseph, who were living happily and firmly ensconced in Nazareth, just in time for Jesus to be born. We also see prophecy being fulfilled in this narrative by the ministry of angels. And again, Hebrews 1, 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And that's a quote from Psalm 97, verse 7. If you go and read that in your Bible, you'll wonder how it connects to Hebrews 1, 6. Um, but in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it reads very clearly. I hope that you'll understand when I say how wonderful it is to consider the fact that God chose to announce the joyful news of his birth first to shepherds. I mean, picture these guys. If if they were around today, they'd be wearing Carhartt coveralls, uh, muck boots, John Deere trucker hats, driving old pickup trucks. They were uh, simple men, uh, most of whom lived in relative poverty and obscurity. They smelled like sheep, often had a little sheep residue on their sandals. Polite society looked down on them, treated them with suspicion and disdain. They were regarded uh, by polite society as dishonest, uh, disreputable. Uh, They were Jews, but because they couldn't observe the details of the ceremonial law with all of the meticulous hand-washing rules and regulations, they couldn't participate in the religious life of their own people. Uh, They were, in fact, uh, on the lowest rung, of the social and religious ladder. Uh, Nevertheless, it was to simple shepherds, men of the field, that God's message of the birth of his son was first given. And that message came from the mouths of angels. What a contrast. What a contrast. You know, the, the appearance of angels in Israel marked the end of 400 years of silence from heaven. For 400 years, there had been no prophets in Israel, uh, no angelic appearances, divine interventions, no theophanies, just silence. But suddenly angels are popping up seemingly everywhere. Miraculous births are taking place. The angel Gabriel, stands in the, who stands in the presence of the Lord, comes and stands in the presence of old Zechariah, the priest in the temple, and announces to him that he would be the father of the one promised by the prophet Malachi, who would be the forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. Zechariah and Elizabeth, old Zach and Liz, were uh, both well beyond childbearing years, but they became the parents of the prophet that we know as John the baptizer. And the angel Gabriel appears first to Mary and then to Joseph, announcing that Mary would become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, that they should call their son Jesus, 
that he would be great and would be called the son of the most high. That the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father David, that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there would be no end. You might ask, what are angels anyway? Well, angels are powerful spirit beings created by God before the dawn of time, before he spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. They were created to serve him, to bring him glory and honor. And he created millions of them. They're not automatons or robots. They're represented in the Bible as personal beings. They possess intellect and emotions and will. So as you think about the angels that appear to the shepherds, realize that these aren't greeting card angels. They're neither Hallmark angels nor American greetings angels, nor Dayspring angels, nor are they cartoon angels or Farsight angels or Precious Moments angels or even Charlie's angels. So what are they? The Bible tells us that they are messengers and ministers. They're worshipers and they're warriors. Luke described the angels who appeared to shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem as a multitude of the heavenly host. A reference to an angel army. How did the shepherds know that these were warrior class angels? Well, we're not explicitly told, but there must have been something about their appearance that not only terrified the shepherds, but gave them the impression that these angels were ready and equipped for battle. Luke 2.9 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round around them, and they were filled with great fear. And that glory that shone around them was the glory of the Lord reflected by the angel. It wasn't their own glory. It's reflected glory. The Bible tells us that God dwells in ineffable, glorious light. You may remember that when Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, when he came back, his face was shining and it was so bright that he had to wear a veil over his face when he spoke with the people. When the incarnate glorified Christ appeared to John, as he, as he recorded in the book of Revelation, the face of Christ shone like the sun, he said. So these shepherds, these simple, unknown, unheralded, unrecognized, obscure shepherds, saw with their own eyes the glory of the Lord reflected in the very beings of those who had come directly from the Lord's presence. Certain that they would have had to look away, and it's no wonder that they were afraid. A literal translation of that last phrase would be, they feared a great fear. They were terrified. King James, they were sore afraid. That angel of the Lord announced the identity and the mission of Jesus to those unnamed, unknown shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem. And in doing that, left no confusion about who it is who was born in Bethlehem that night 
In making his announcement to, the, to them, the angel uses three titles for the newborn Jesus. And in the entirety of the Bible, only here in Luke 2 do these three titles ever appear together. Before we look at those titles, I, I want to call your attention to a, a little two-word phrase spoken by the angel. And that phrase is, unto you. Unto you. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto you. Where else do we hear that two-word phrase spoken regarding the birth of Messiah? It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't think it was any coincidence at all that the angel echoed the words uh, of the prophet regarding the child born to these shepherds in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And first he said that this child who is born is the Savior. He's the Savior. The angel who spoke with Mary and the angel who appeared to Joseph said to each of them that they were to call their son Jesus. Uh, Very prominent in the things that the angel spoke to each of them individually. And they were to call their, their son Jesus because it was he who would save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, and it literally means God saves or God is salvation. So, so when the angel informed the shepherds of a Savior who was be, to be born to them, he was saying precisely the same thing he had said to both Mary And Joseph, Jesus was born to be our Savior. You don't use that word very often these days. Uh, Most people think it's just some weird religious term. But years later, Jesus said to his friend Nicodemus, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. To his disciples, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Apostle Peter wrote to his protege, or Paul rather, wrote to his protege Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What does that mean? It means that in Jesus Christ, God sent the one who would solve the predicament of our separation from God and the condemnation that would follow it by offering himself as the sacrifice by which our sin could be forgiven. And because he was one of us, he could die in our place as our substitute. Because he's the sinless son of God, he can be our savior. And second, the angel said that he is the Christ. He's the Christ. I remember thinking when I was a kid that Christ must be Jesus' last name, you know. Joseph Christ, 
Mary Christ, Jesus Christ. On their mailbox was their street number and the last name Christ. That's the way I had it figured out. It was only later that I came to understand that Christ is not a name but a title. It's a title, the the Christ, Ho Christos, is the Greek form of the Hebrew Mashiach, Hamashiach, or Messiah, which means the anointed one. The angel wanted the shepherds to understand that the child born in Bethlehem is the one for whose coming they and all Israel had been waiting and longing, the one to whom all the law and the prophets had been pointing for thousands of years. This must have been on the mind of Phillips Brooks when he penned those words in old little town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But why were they waiting for him and for what purpose was he anointed? Again, there's a concept that we don't think about an awful lot. In Old Testament history, kings were anointed for their rule. Priests were anointed for their ministries. How does the title Christ apply uniquely to Jesus? Allow me to point out three functions of the Christ that encompassed the role for which he was anointed. First of all, he was anointed to reveal God to us. He was anointed to reveal God to us. The Apostle John begins the first chapter of his gospel with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me just pause there. The Word. Why is Jesus referred to as the Word? In Greek, the Lagos. In Greek thought, Greek philosophy, the very center of everything, the the, the central principle in all of existence, in all of the universe, was referred to as the Word, the Lagos, the main thing. And so John says to a Greek audience, in the beginning was what it was all about, what everything's all about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the... And and now he says, He. It's not just a principle. It's not just an esoteric theory. But the, 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 the thing at the center of it all is a person, He. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. He's the Creator. Without Him was not made anything that was made. And the Word, in verse 14, He says, the Word became flesh. The center of everything, the main idea, the organizing principle in all of the universe became was a person and became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to know that Jesus, the Word, is eternal creator God, and that when we see him, we see the Father. So in verse 18, he adds, no one has ever seen God. 
but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And later he said to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to reveal God to us, his character, his word, his will for our lives, his love for us, his grace, his mercy, his compassion toward us. Second, Messiah, Jesus, was anointed to rule, to rule. Isaiah the prophet anticipated that Messiah would sit on David's throne and rule over an eternal kingdom. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. An eternal kingdom. The writer of Hebrews applies Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 to the Son of God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And he's coming to earth again one day to rule and to reign forever and ever. But his rule is not merely in the future. It's not just a someday kind of deal. He is the once and future king who is reigning now. The apostle Paul wrote that because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him, notice has, past tense, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's ruling now. The full acknowledgement by humanity comes much later. He was also anointed third to reconcile us to God, to reconcile us to God. In Christ, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's the reason he came, not counting their trespasses against them. To the Colossians, Paul wrote, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. What's the third thing? He's the Lord. He's the Lord. So the crowning declaration of the angel is that this child is not merely a human Savior. He's not just a politician. He's not just a temporal king. He's not a merely human Messiah. See, in declaring that that he is the Lord, the angel identifies Jesus as very God of very God. Not a Lord, but the Lord. Not one option among many, but the one, the one to whom each of us is ultimately then accountable. Notice one last thing that the angel said. He didn't say he would become Lord. He said he is the Lord. 
He is the Lord. Songwriter Joseph Moore captured this truth when on Christmas Eve in 1818 he wrote, Silent night, holy night, son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. He was, he was Lord when he was born. An army of angels worshipped God in, in the sky that night above those shepherds. What a light show that must have been, huh? Worshipped God declared the purpose of Jesus' birth. And if seeing and hearing from one angel and beholding the glory of the Most High God and experiencing sheer terror and panic, the likes of which these shepherds had never experienced, nor whatever again wasn't enough for one night. Luke then records that suddenly the one angel was joined by a multitude of the heavenly host. How many is a multitude? I don't know. It's a lot. A gazillion. And what is a heavenly host? The, the word host refers to a, a, a military presence, an army. But when they appeared, they were praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. First, in the birth of his son, our Savior, who is Christ the Lord, God is glorified. And second, to those who receive this child, whoever and whenever and wherever they may be, God gives the gift of peace. I grew up on the King James Version of the Bible. That translation says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. But do you know that that's not an accurate translation of what the angels said? God's peace isn't given to everyone. The, uh, the, the sense there is that on earth peace and everything's going to be peaceful forever and ever and men shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. It's not what the angels were saying. God's peace isn't given to everyone. It's given to those with whom he is pleased, or as the New International Version puts it, those on whom his favor rests. And the truth is that God's peace is offered to the whole world. It's offered to all of humanity. It's offered to all of us this morning, but only those who receive Jesus as Savior and as Christ and as Lord will ever experience it. And what is that peace? First of all, it's peace with God. Peace with God. Jesus came to bring peace with God. Romans 5.1, Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, here's the gospel. The Bible says that by ourselves and in our sin, we are objects of God's wrath. I often think of, you've heard me say this, you've been around here a while, I always think of the, the target employees that are always walking around with targets on them, right? Just so somebody can line up their crosshairs. And that's, that's the concept here. We, we are objects of God's wrath apart from Christ, that God, God in his wrath towards sin has us in his crosshairs. And only judgment and condemnation and eternal death awaits us. But when we place our faith in Jesus, 
when we trust in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, dying in our place so that our sin, all that separates us from God, all of our failure to meet his righteous standard is forgiven. God's wrath toward our sin is turned away forever. And in its place, in its place is peace, a reconciled relationship with God. Jesus came to bring peace with God, but he also came to bring peace within ourselves, with ourselves. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus promised his peace. That is his very own peace, the peace he experiences. Not just a secondhand peace. My peace, he said, I leave with you. I impart it to you. And the world can't ever begin to provide that kind of peace. No amount of money or possessions or leisure or social status or professional achievement, neither alcohol nor drugs can ever bring us genuine peace. Only God offers genuine peace, and he offers it to us exclusively through Jesus Christ. Life on this planet brings worry, anxiety, fear, loss, And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And third, Jesus came to bring peace. Wait for it. In the church. Peace in the church. Notice that phrase, and on earth peace among, among those with whom he is pleased. You know, if the church is anything, if, if it's a real church, if it's anything, it's a reconciled, reconciling community. In other words, we are reconciled to God. We're being reconciled to each other. It's not always pretty in the church, is it? I mean, churches can be pretty weird places. See, pretty dysfunctional relationships in churches. Howard Hendricks used to say, you know, in the church behind every smile is a set of teeth. Because we're all broken people. We're all sinful people. All selfish people. But Jesus intends that our relationships within the church be characterized by peace. Not a fake peace, not an uneasy truce, not artificial kindness, but genuine peace. And that's among the reasons that he went to the cross. Now in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our, notice that, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So God's intent for us in the church is that we become a model. We become a a visual demonstration of his peace worked out in human relationships among redeemed people. Well, what about you? 
Have you trusted in the Christ who was born to us on Christmas Day? Do you have confidence this morning that as you stand before God, he declares you justified, just as if I never sinned, by virtue of your personal faith in his son? Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with yourself? The amazing thing is that when God puts us back together out of our brokenness, there's a wholeness that begins to develop in our lives. Are you at peace with yourself? Are you, are your relationships with your family members, those with whom you'll celebrate Christmas next weekend? Are those relationships characterized by authentic peace? Today on this Sunday before Christmas 2021, I invite you to transfer your trust from all of the other things that give you a counterfeit sense of confidence before God, but that can never bring you peace, never bring you peace with God, never bring you peace with yourself, never bring you peace with others, and and place your trust fully in Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful season of the year. Thank you for the opportunity to reflect on who you are, who you came to be, and with whom we, and to whom we must give an account of our lives. And Lord, would you, by your Spirit, draw us to Christ? Draw us into a deeper relationship. Change us, Lord. Make us like Christ. Forgive us our sins. Make us the people you want us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.